I'm excited to study God's word here with you. So if you please open up to Acts chapter 9, we're going to see what happens when the persecutor, excuse me, what happens when the persecutor meets Jesus. The persecutor, obviously, uh, some of you guys know that in Acts chapter 9, this is talking about Saul, okay? He is a Pharisee. He is uh, under the teaching of Gamaliel. He's very intelligent, very smart. He was present in the last chapter at Stephen's um, martyrdom, right? uh, Or two chapters ago, sorry, in chapter 7, the stoning of Stephen, giving a hearty approval to it. And actually, one one of the things that I think is helpful before we read it is, and I love it when the Bible tells me what I'm supposed to know about the Bible. <laughs> like, I love it when the Bible comments on the Bible itself. And this is one of those chapters uh, where God literally tells us in 1 Timothy 1.16 what it is that we're supposed to learn from Acts chapter 9. We don't have to beat our heads and wonder and think, what am I supposed to get out of this chapter? Because God tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16, and this is what it says. 1 Timothy 1, chapter 16, this is Paul writing to Timothy, and he says, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, he's talking about sinner, foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Did you hear that? What's the point? What are we supposed to understand from Saul's conversion story to Paul? We're supposed to read this story, and what we're meant to get, we're supposed to understand the profound patience of Jesus, okay? It tells us that. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to think. What is, what's the point here? I'm just going to read it again, and maybe I'll start in verse 15 again. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. That's you. Acts chapter 9 was written so that you would know who Jesus is. That's the whole point of Acts chapter 9. And, 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 And actually, a specific characteristic of Jesus, and that's his perfect and profound patience. So now uh, let's, let's go read Acts chapter 9, thinking of that, having that in mind. Uh, let's read it, and then we'll pray, and we'll ask the Lord uh, to bless us and to show us his perfect patience tonight. Starting in verse 1, it says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's, that's what they, uh, the first original name for Christians or the Christianity was, it's the way, men and women, he, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem, men or women, excuse me. Verse three, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said to him, here I am, Lord. 
And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, which apparently is still there. You can go find it today. At the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in, come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Would you please bow your head and um, pray with me, ask the Lord to bless us and to speak to us tonight. Well, God, we know that you live. Jesus, we know that you rose from the dead and that you sit at the right hand of your Father and that you hear us even tonight and that we come before, Lord, we come before you um, humbly tonight. God, we come before you as um, not the most well-educated, not the brightest, not the, or we're just a, a bunch of college students, Lord. Um, but Lord, we come before you because we're hungry. We come before you because we want to know you. And Lord, your word says, you say, God, in your word that you will pour out water on the thirsty ground. And so, Jesus, we pray you'd pour out your spirit on all those that are uh, thirsty, all those that are hungry, all those that uh, hunger and thirst for you. Lord, you say that if we ask, that you'll, uh, we'll find. If we seek, if we knock, that we'll receive. Lord, if you say we continue in prayer, we will receive your spirit. And so, Lord, just taking all these promises, we come before you, Jesus, and we say uh, you're not a liar. Lord, you tell the truth. And so we ask you to bless us tonight. We ask you to reveal yourself to us tonight, God. We, I ask you to do something supernatural, something beyond what we can do, something beyond anything I can do. And Lord, I pray that you'd save souls, that you'd redeem lives that are going to spend eternity in hell. And today they would turn and they would be an eternity with heaven with you, God, that you would save souls. The harvest is plentiful, God. I pray you'd reap a great harvest tonight by your power. Oh, God, we uh, love you. Uh, we're happy to know you. We're so thankful, God, for your profound patience. Oh, Lord, I know that many people have the same story as me, which is that you were just shockingly patient, shockingly patient as I spit in your face for years and years and years until you were, until you were pleased to save me. And so, Lord, we thank you for your patience. We thank you for your profound kindness. Lord, we thank you for the example of it that we have here in Acts 9. And I just beg you to speak tonight. I beg you to move in hearts and change lives and do what I can. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you hear us, that you know us, and we pray that you do your work. Amen. Amen. Okay. Well, uh, look with me again at Acts 9. Just look down at your Bible. We're just going to kind of work through the first half of it. We'll work line by line or at one line or two lines at a time. And then the second half we'll work through, we'll just kind of take as a chunk. Okay. And so right at the beginning here, it says, but Saul still breathing threats under, uh, sorry, and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked him for letters to synagogues at Damascus that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. 
Now, when it emphasizes in the New Testament that that Paul's not just persecuting men, but also women, it's meant to give us an understanding of how how profoundly brutal this is, right? He's not just going after the leaders. He's not just going after the men and the heads of family that ought to, in his mind, know better. He's everyone that's a part of this way. He is persecuting. He is killing. He is uh, dragging them off into prison. And we can just get a sense early on, what we're supposed to get a sense of is Paul's heart in all of this. What, What is he like? What kind of a guy is he? He's breathing threats and murder underneath his breath, right? And one of the things we know, because uh, the New Testament tells us, and, and in fact, you guys, we, we just talked about it. Uh, uh, Caleb talked about this with the uh, sermon on Nicodemus. Nicodemus came to Jesus, and he said, we know, we know that you are from God. When he was saying we, what did he mean? I think that what Nicodemus meant when he was saying this, we, his circle, the people he walked with and ran with, which was the Pharisees and the Jews, we deep down, we, we know that you are from God. Isn't that wild? We know, we're not confused. We know that you're deep down in our hearts. It's revealed to us. Nobody can do these miracles unless God is with you. We know that you are from God. No one else can do these miracles. We know it. And the reason why they were persecuting is not necessarily because they didn't know that he was the Messiah, The reason they were persecuting is because they knew that he was the Messiah and they were profoundly jealous. They hated all the success that Jesus got, right? This is explicitly told us to us. It says that, uh, you know, Jesus says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another? They couldn't bear to share their glory with somebody else when they were standing before, uh, Jesus was standing before Pilate. It seems like Pilate recognized that this was just a big sham and it was because they were jealous of the profound success and love uh, that people had for Jesus that they were persecuting him. And it's likely that Paul, or Saul still, right? He's, He's got the same kind of heart. He's a Pharisee. He, is, uh, he, he has a hatred for Jesus. It's obvious. He's breathing murder. He has a hatred for Jesus that's been born out of a jealousy for all the success that he's had. And so what does he do? He, he does what any good uh, leader in the church ought to do, right? What does he do? He's going to go stamp out this heresy. He's going to go and stamp out this false teaching that's leading people away, right? And there's something about that that could be noble. Maybe he was thinking of Phineas when he stabbed that guy and that girl to halt the disease that was running through Israel, right? He needs to be violent to address this error. But I think deep down in his heart, he had suppressed and hardened the truth that he knew that this was the Messiah. That's possible. That's possible. I would even say that that's likely. Okay, I could be wrong. I don't want to be too dogmatic about that, but that's possible. But certainly, certainly, Paul is coming out here and he's trying to murder and threaten and stamp out this heresy. This heresy. That's his heart. It's proud. His heart is hard. He's filled with rage. He probably, to some degree, believes he's in the right. And what happens? Verse 3, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? <laughs> oh my goodness, guys, this is insane. This is, this is stunning. This, this is, I, I, I'm almost certain, I, I did not understand how profound this would have been for Paul. Actually, profound is not the right word. I didn't understand how devastating this would have been for Paul until I started to dig in and pray over this and read over this, right? And that's, that's not um, what you guys are doing every day. You're not praying and digging and, and reading through hours on the same text. And so probably what you do is you read this, and just like I did for all of my Christian life, you keep on reading and thinking, that's pretty crazy, but not fully grasping how devastating this moment would have been to Paul. 
Think about it. what's happening here is, is he's filled with rage and then this light shines and this light is demonstrating the glory of the one that's persecu- that he's persecuting, the glory and the beauty and the wonder of God, right? And then when he says, Saul, Saul, when he repeats that, when Jesus repeats that phrase, it doesn't mean that he's angry with him, right? Repeating those words, when Jesus does that early in the New Testament, it is almost always indicates a, a sense of pain or sorrow in his heart, right? So our examples are Matthew 23, 37, when he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he repeats it, right? And, and you can almost, you're supposed to hear the pain in Jesus' voice here, guys. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen uh, gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Do you hear the pain? He does it again in Luke chapter 10, verse 41. The Lord answered her, talking to Martha, and he says, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. Do you understand that? And so when uh, Jesus in all of his glory and all of his beauty and splendor and majesty shows up and appears to Paul and he repeats his name and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This would have been devastating to Saul. Let me, let me give us an illustration to just kind of understand this. Uh, hopefully this helps it to land what this would have been like to be, to be Paul in this moment. Um, imagine you are at home. Ladies, I hope this works. I hope, I hope you can relate to this. Uh, the guys, I think you'll definitely be able to relate to this. Imagine you're at home. It's late at night. Guys, let's say you're sleeping. Your wife's out. Maybe she's reading her Bible, reading a book, watching TV, something like that. And you hear a loud noise. Okay? Door get kicked in. Something happening. You just hear a ruckus. You hear things breaking. And you go out. And it's dark. And you're confused. And you're kind of scared. And you're like, what the heck is going on out here? Right? And let's say you see some masked people absolutely brutalizing uh, your wife and destroying your home. What do you do? Well, if you're any man worth his salt, what you do is you roll up your sleeves right? and you get to work. Right? You, you, you're going to go fight for your wife. Right? You go and you try to uh, destroy this person, this threat that has entered into your home. But it's dark and it's confusing, right? And so you find this masked person and, and they're causing a scene. They're running around and you grab them. And let's just say you, you just start to destroy this person, right? Rightfully so. They've broken into your home. They're destroying the things that you love. And you just think, I am going to destroy this person for what they've done. And, and I, I'm not, I'm, uh, I promise, I'm not, I'm, I think being graphic here will be helpful. Let's say you're just beating them and you hear their ribs crack. I know, no, I, I'm, I promise I'm not doing it just for, uh, but let's say you, you see some blood leaking out of the mat. Maybe there's some bits of teeth on the ground. You, you were just destroying this person, right? You can tell they're having a hard time breathing and you're just, you're, you're, you're dominant. You're protecting your home. And then they lift up the mask and underneath the mask is your wife. And, and what she said, you got confused somehow. They put a mat. They were going to carry her away. You got confused. And what she says to you is, why are you doing this to me? Do you understand that? That's what it would have been like for Paul. He is uh, trying to protect the people that he loves. He's trying to stamp out this heresy. He's trying to uh, rid himself of this evil, and he's going at it tooth and nail. If anything, uh, my illustration of cracked ribs and broken teeth wasn't enough, right? Stephen just got murdered for this. And Saul was a part of it, and then this light shines from heaven, and you realize, oh no. I've been persecuting the one that I love the most. 
right? He's a Jew. His whole life was about serving God, knowing God, loving God. He'd studied under, he'd read Deuteronomy 6, you shall love the Lord your God, right? He, he, he was, uh, he, he would have been just, he would have realized, I think, in this moment with that light shining, oh, oh no, the person that I love the most, I have been devastating. I, I've been, I mean, put yourself in this situation. Wouldn't you just be devastated? You'd be destroyed, right? If anything, my illustration, it's not enough. We're talking about God here. And Paul himself, he was setting his mind for how he could destroy. There wasn't the confusion of the night. You couldn't try to say, well, how was I supposed to know, right? He was setting his mind and planning ahead of time and, and going to his leaders and saying, hey, I want the letters because I'm so eager to persecute them. And then it shines from heaven. Jesus shows up and he realizes he's been wrong about everything. He, he, he would have been... Uh, devastated, and he would have had to have been profoundly humbled, right? Like that would have been what happened to him, profoundly humbled. And notice what happens when you be humbled like that, what's the first thing that comes out of his mouth? He said to him, who are you, Lord? It's verse five, that's it. Just read. What does he say? He's profoundly humbled. This happens in a moment he meets Jesus. He's radically humbled, and he says, who are you, Lord? He's no longer persecuting. He's no longer breathing threats. He's no longer thinking about the people that he can drag off and kill and murder. He's no longer thinking about how he can persecute the way. Now all he wants to know is, who are you, Lord? Um, and uh, I, I, think, um, I, I think this demonstrates well how, how humbled he's been. Like, I think Paul, I think he would have thought that he, he really knew God beforehand, right? Like, I think before this all happened, as a Jew and as a leader, he thought, you know, I am in the Pharisees. I was trained under Gamaliel. I've been rising to the ranks faster than anybody else. If anybody knows God, I know God. I know God. And then he actually sees him. And now what is he saying? He says, who are you, Lord? He recognizes that he doesn't know God at all. He recognizes that he doesn't understand who God is, that he didn't know God the way he thought he did, and he wasn't going after God the way he thought he was. Everything in his life just got nuked in this moment. In this moment. And what he wants to know is, who are you? He's hungry to know God. And I think we, as Christians, we, you, us, all together in this room, we make a massive mistake. We make a massive mistake when, like Paul, we, we assume we know what we need to know about God. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> we make a massive mistake when we roll into conferences or we go to church or we show up to Bible study and we're honestly having a low expectation about what we're going to learn or how we're going to grow or what God's going to do to us because we think, you know, I, I've been a Christian for a while or even if you haven't been a Christian, maybe you're just raised in the church or you've read your Bible quite a bit, right? And so you know God. We make a massive mistake when we do that. That is demonstrating a heart that's proud. That's demonstrating a heart that is hardened. And a heart that's like that is not healthy. It's not a heart that's hungering and thirsting after God, right? And this isn't just when you become a Christian. It's not just right off the bat that you ought to want to know God. What happened? Paul was profoundly humbled. And now this isn't just something that he says in his conversion. He spends the rest of his life asking this question, doesn't he? He spends the rest of his life profoundly humbled, asking this question. I just want to know who you are, Lord. This is Philippians 3, verse 8. This is where I get this from. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish 
in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Why? Why do you want to be saved? Why do you pursue him? Why do you count on all as lost? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That, that, that's a hungry man. Do you see that? He is the apostle Paul. And he's still writing things like this in Philippians years after his conversion where he's saying, all I want is to know Jesus. That's my chief desire. I want to know his love. I don't want to know his mercy. I want to know his patience. I want to know his kindness. I want to know his grace towards me. I want to know his purposes for this life. I want to know his purposes for me. I want to know Jesus. That's what Paul is saying over and over and over. And this is his heart. You hear it coming out so strongly in this passage. And here's my fear. Here's my fear. And it's my fear because I see to myself. Here's my fear is that many of us, we don't have that heart at all. We don't roll into fall conference saying, Jesus, I want to know you. If we're honest, we're pretty comfortable with how well we know Jesus, right? We don't go to church on Sundays thinking, Jesus, I want to know you. I want to know you more. We don't roll into our Bible studies or our midweek services or wake up in the morning or open our Bibles or bend our knees in prayer, just hungry to know this risen, real, living Jesus more. But if we're honest, we're kind of comfortable with how well we know Christ. We feel like we know him pretty well. We got a handle on Jesus, right? Our Christology is great. Let's move on to something bigger. How about soteriology or, uh, you know, whatever, big words, all right? And so here's, here's one way where you can tell. This is just kind of a litmus, a litmus test, okay? And, and, and guys, I, I pro- I'm saying all of these things, and what they're coming out of is seeing them in my own heart and just, and just begging God to change me. Seeing them and, and hating that I see this in my own heart, okay? If you're, if you, here's, here's a litmus test. It, uh, let's just use this conference, but you can apply this anywhere. If you've been showing up to this conference and, and your heart, your cry hasn't been, okay, Jesus, please, please show me more of yourself. If your heart has been, oh, that music wasn't that good. Right? I've, I've heard better. Uh, that, a uh, hymn? <laughs> If you show up to the, you know, that teaching, you know, it was okay. You know, I've heard better. It was a pretty good conference, you know. Oh, the CF living, yeah, it was pretty cool. You know, yeah, this whole conference has been pretty great, but I, you know, I've been, I've, I've seen better things or I've done better. If we putting ourselves in a place of judgment and just thinking about what we can receive as far as entertainment or some kind of emotional experience or how people are, are, are going to teach us and, and, and give us a more understanding of the Bible, we're sitting in judgment over the whole conference or over the church service or over the Bible study or whatever it is, your heart might not be as bad as Paul's is, right? You're not showing up here thinking, how can I kill some people? How can I drag them off to prison? But your heart, it's the exact same posture. It's the exact same posture of sitting over and above these things, feeling like you've got it all figured out, filled with pride and not humbling yourself and saying, Jesus, I just want to know you. And if that's your heart, can, I promise I say this because I love you. I swear I say this because I, I pray that you'll be able to believe me. Your heart is sick. It's not healthy. The Apostle Paul, with all of his wisdom, with all of his learning, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, what was the posture of his heart? I just want to know Jesus. I don't think Paul would care necessarily about where he learned it. How, you know, I, I, think, I think he would show, and he would just, Jesus, show me more of who you are, 
right? He's been profoundly humbled on the road to Damascus. He's been shown his own sin. He's been shown the glory of God. He's been down, and and what does he cry out? Who are you, Lord? And so what's your path back? How do you get back? If you're you're like, that's me. That's where I'm at. What's your path back, right? And and this is not just students, uh, directors. I don't think there's any pastors in the room. I'm talking to all of us, right? What's your path back to humility? What's your path back to just a hunger and thirst for Christ? Well, here's what you need to do. You need, what needs to happen is just like with the Apostle Paul, you need to be profoundly humbled by meeting Jesus. What needs to happen is you need to see that you're not that different from Paul. And that just like Jesus was profoundly patient with him, right? He put up with Paul's breathing threats and murders. He put up with all his sin. He put up with all of his hardness of heart, put up with him thinking he knows God when he doesn't. He put up with it all that time. And then in his profound patience and love revealed himself to him at the appropriate time, just like the apostle Paul, that's what God's done for you here in this conference. Doesn't that make sense? Does that make sense? Like, I believe that the reason you're here is because Jesus brought you here. Okay, I believe the reason you're here is because Christ has been patient with you and he loves you and his desire is for you to know him. And so think about the last three or one to four years of your life. Okay, just think about the last few years of your life. Has your life been a model of hungering and thirsting after Christ? would, Would that characterize your life? Okay, if the answer is no, then here's the dot that you need to connect. That person that you met on campus that day, Jesus put them there. And when they invited you to the fall conference, Jesus was inviting you to fall conference. And when they decided that these would be the topics that they were speaking on, Jesus decided that these would be the topics. And when I started speaking these things, I pray I'm not speaking my own power or my own authority, but that Jesus himself is speaking to you tonight. It is Jesus, right? Revealing himself to you now and offering eternal life and salvation if you would just humble yourself. And recognize that just like Paul, you've been breathing threats and murder. You've been arrogant in your spirit. You haven't been hungering and thirsting after the God that wants to know you. And yet in his divine wisdom and patience and foreknowledge and love, he has decided tonight to reveal himself to you. If you'll just humble yourself and accept it. Isn't that amazing? It's very similar to what's happening with Paul here. And, and again, I pray that you'll know, I say this because I believe, uh, because I love you. I hope you believe me. Um, if, if, you, if you don't, like if you just refuse to humble your heart, you know, this John guy is just emotionally manipulating me. I've been to these conferences. I know what they do. The last night they get you all worked up and then they're going to have an altar call at the end. I'm not falling for it. If that's your heart, okay, where you just, I'm not going to be humbled. I'm not going to be tricked. I'm not going to be duped. If that's your heart, okay, um, And and you'll die, that'll happen, you're going to die, and you'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ, okay? And um, you won't be able to say, you won't be able to say, Jesus, you didn't give me a chance. Jesus, you didn't didn't show yourself to me. That that won't be an option. You know what Jesus will be able to say? What do you mean I didn't give you an option? What do you mean? I I brought you to this, I had you born into this family, and then I had you go to that university, and then I had you meet that person, and I had you invite you to that conference, and I had them speak that message out of that passage, and I had them say that to you at that moment, and that this was going to happen, right? And you hardened your heart. You said, I'll have none of it. And on that day, I think what will happen is you'll realize I am without excuse. 
And when Jesus says to me, depart from me, I never knew you, I, I don't think you'll complain. I don't think, you, I, I think you'll say, I, I, yes, Lord. Um, Daniel 5, 22, I think demonstrates this really clearly. It says, and you, his son, Belshazzar, it's the son of Nebuchadnezzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all of this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. In other words, uh, they've got divine and holy things right in front of them. And even though he knows all these things about God, he's refused to humble himself. He's refused to acknowledge that these are holy things that are happening in front of him. He's hardened his heart, and he says, You have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath. And in whose all your ways, in other words, all of your ways are organized by him. The fact that you're here tonight is because of him. You have not honored. Does that make sense? Um, but it doesn't have to be that way, right? If, you're, if you look back at your past, you look at these last three or four years or however long it's been, and your life has not been one of seeking and hungering and thirsting after Christ, but if you're honest, pride has characterized your heart. Hardness of heart has characterized who you are. Here tonight, what Jesus is doing is he's appearing to you, in a sense, through his preached word, and he's giving you the opportunity to repent and believe, just like Paul. He is drawing you to himself. How can you tell if he's drawing you to himself? Are you humbled? Do you feel the weight of your sin? Does it seem shocking to you? It should feel shocking to you that the God of the universe, who would be absolutely in his right mind to say, uh, I don't know you, depart from me, I don't give two figs about you, right? When you've said that to him in the way that you've lived your life, right? That God, he hasn't done that. Does it seem shocking to you that though we are like worms, we've uh, uh, not wanted to know the holy and living God, even though that's been the posture of our heart, the God who doesn't need us or uh, really is, would be totally just in not wanting to know us has reached down and organized things in your life to bring you back to him to, uh, so that you can know him? Does that shock you? Does that humble you? Do you love him? Does it make you love him? It should. It, it should make you profoundly love him. It should change your life. It should make you say, along with Paul, who are you, Lord? Who is this Jesus guy that I've known about my whole life? But who, who, who are you? Can you really love that much? Can you really be that patient? Can you really be that kind and merciful and good? I want to know you. Do you see how that change will happen? That's what happened to Paul, and that's what is being offered to you tonight. But that's not the only question that Paul asked. In Acts 9, the, de the details that we have from this narrative, that's the question that he asked. But in Acts 22, Paul gives us some more information about what happened to him on the Damascus Road, and he asks another question. He, he asks another question. He says, look, jump, jump down me to verse 8, just for time's sake. He says, and I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Verse 9, now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking. And then look, he asked a second question. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? <laughs> you see that? What are the two questions that you ask when you see the love of God and you see the profoundness of your sin and it humbles you down to the dust that he would love you the way he does? You ask, who, who are you that you would love like this? And you ask, uh, what do you want me to do, Lord? What do you want me to do? 
Do you see this in Paul? Do you see? He's, again, no longer breathing threats, no longer trying to persecute the church of God, profoundly changed, not going after his own way of life anymore, not thinking, these are my plans, this is what I'm going to do, this is what I'm going to graduate, this is the job I'm going to have, this is the money I'm going to make, these are the kids I'm going to have, and then I'm going to retire and die. That's not how he's thinking at all anymore. He's saying, okay, Jesus, uh, what do you want me to do? If you love me like this, if you've had patience with me like this, if you're that good, then you've won my heart, Lord. I want to serve you. If you, Jesus, God, have loved a sinner like me this much, I love you. I want to follow you. He wins Paul's heart. What should I do, Lord? Man, so many of us, if we're honest, we live our lives without ever asking that question. We live our lives for what feels best to us, what we want to do, what's going to satisfy us the most. We map out all of our life, and we don't stop and ask Jesus, what do you want me to do for one second? It doesn't even come into our mind. What is that? That too demonstrates a pride of heart. That too demonstrates a heart that doesn't understand the profound patience and love of Jesus. That too demonstrates a heart that has not been transformed, and Paul was transformed. Back in verse 9, I'm going to jump all the way down to verse 9 of Acts 9 here. And it says, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. <laughs> like, you, you want to talk about how profoundly this guy was changed? Like, when they wouldn't eat or drink in the Old Testament, fasting, it was often a sign of humbling themselves. They were profoundly humbled. They're laid low. They're not strengthening themselves with food. They're weak and acknowledging their weakness. And it says, for three days, he doesn't eat or drink anything. Can you imagine something happening in your life that is so profound that you don't want to drink water for three days? Like, this happened to him about noon, is what uh, later on in Acts says. Some of you guys maybe got to the conference about noon, and then you go all day Friday without drinking any water, and then Saturday, all, to t all day today, you don't drink any water, you don't eat any food, and then tomorrow, we don't know when Ananias comes to him, and he eats and drinks and strengthens himself. Let's just say noon again, okay? Uh, can you imagine going that long, and you, you, you refuse water? Because you're just so transformed, you're so humbled. This, is, th this guy, he's had his whole life devastated. He realizes, man, my friends are going to have to change. <laughs> man, my job's going to have to change. All of my studying has been for nothing, right? I would say it's, nothing. it's useful to know the Old Testament. It comes useful when he's writing the New Testament. <sighs> but man, right, like, like things are changing for this guy. This is profound change, profound change. Here's the point. When, when you meet God... When you meet God uh, and you meet him in your pride, if you really meet him, if you really meet Jesus and you really see his glory and you really see his patience, you're profoundly humbled so that you want to know him and you want to obey him. And it really, truly, radically changes your life. That's what happens when you meet Jesus. You become a new person, just like Paul. And, and, and I'm just going to take this whole section two, when he's go, verse 10, there was a disciple at Damascus. Uh, let's just read it to refresh it and get it in our minds. There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. <laughs> that seems kind of different, right? He's a different guy. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. And I think this, uh, this blindness, I think, I think it's meant to symbolically show Paul, dude, you've been blind your whole life. And now it's a reality, 
right? He, he, I think it would have been a living representation of his blindness. And when the scales fall from his eyes, a living representation to him of his sight. Now I see. Now I know Jesus, and so now I see rightly. I understand what the world's about. I understand what I'm about. I understand everything now. I see Jesus now. Verse 14, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who come call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go. This is, this is Jesus talking, right? Like Ananias is just having a conversation with Jesus, right? Like don't let that go over your head. This is crazy. You know, he's just talking and Jesus is talking back. He says, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And I don't know if you caught this, but this is, this is just amazing. When we read in Philippians, did you catch that at the very end, that I might suffer with him? Is this an indictment against Paul? When Jesus comes to Ananias and he says, hey, he's a chosen instrument of mine. I've known him. I've planned on saving him from the foundation of the world. I've known that I was going to save him. Now's the time. And I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Paul loves Jesus so much that he considers it an honor to suffer with him so that he would know him more. That's what it says in Philippians 3, doesn't it? You can go back and read it. He wants to suffer with Jesus, so to speak. I don't think he's, you know, a sadist or something, but he wants to suffer because he wants to know Christ. He's been so changed. He loves Christ so much that he even considers this, and this is profoundly different from the health and wealth gospel, by the way. <laughs> he even considers this, that he's going to suffer a gift from Christ. And so Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Did you notice a shift in the story? Paul doesn't say anything. He doesn't even talk anymore, right? And now who's the story all about? The story has shifted now. It's no longer centering around Paul. It's not centering around Saul. It's centered now on Ananias. This, he wasn't a prophet. As far as we know, he wasn't an evangelist. He wasn't a leader in the church. He was just a guy. He was just a guy, and Jesus came, and he spoke to him, and he told him to do some things. He told him, hey, I'm Jesus. I'm the Lord. I have power. I'm saving this guy, so go and obey. And what we're supposed to understand from this section, and really from all of Acts, guys, what all of Acts is about, is how Jesus is establishing and confirming and strengthening his church. I'm going to go long. Is that okay? Are we okay with that? Do you guys got somewhere to be tonight? Anybody? No? Okay. Is that all right? This, this, I, I'm just so passionate about this next point. I'm just so passionate about it. If you could, please turn with me to Acts 1. Okay? I, I think we've totally missed the boat on some of this. this. This is a doctrine as old as time. You can go study it in any of our church fathers. You, it's, it's everywhere in, in our writings. But for some reason, it just hasn't been emphasized. It just hasn't been emphasized the way I think it ought to be. Acts chapter 1, look at me at verse 1. It says, in the first book, O Theophilus, this is what Acts is about. I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. <laughs> Stop right. I, please read it. Like, look down and read it. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. What? What was the first book? This is Luke that wrote this. The first book was the entire book of Luke. So Jesus' life from birth to crucifixion and resurrection, all of that, what Luke is saying is that is what Jesus began to do. What's implied there? What's implied there is that Jesus is not done. 
What's implied there is the book of Acts, the rest of what he's saying Jesus is going to continue to do. Luke, what Jesus began to do, Acts, and on into the future, what Jesus continues to do. We need to ask ourselves, why is the resurrection so important? Why is it so important? Is it just important because it demonstrates that Jesus really was God? Or is there more to it than that? There's, I, think, I would argue it's massively more important than that. Like, think for a second. Just think about it, right? He rose from the dead. He has a real body. He ate. They touched him, right? It's a glorified body, but it's a real body. And then what happens? He's talking to them, and he rises up into the sky, and an angel comes. He's like, why are you looking? He's going to come back. But think about it. What happens after he's concealed by the clouds? Right? Like he's still going. He goes through the atmosphere. He goes past the moon. Jupiter. Like what, what happens? Like does his body die? Like and fall to earth and his spirit go to God? Right? And that can't be right. Like what happens to Jesus' body? What happens to his resurrected body? What happens to Jesus? The scripture tells us, what it tells us is that he is seated right now at the right hand of his father. And that he does, he is God, he upholds everything with his power, right? There's a sense in which he is God and he's amongst us now and he's upholding everything with his power. And at the same time, he has a pot, a body and a location by his father, okay? I'm getting into deep waters here. I don't want to say the wrong thing. He is God and at the same time, he's resurrected right now, seated at the right hand of his father in heaven. And what this is telling us is everything that's happening in the church and everything that's happening in Acts, it is Jesus moving and directing and doing it. You with me? Turn me a page. I'll show you. Turn me to Luke 2. What's the whole point of Luke chapter 2? Or Peter's sermon? Okay, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. They're speaking in tongues. People think they're crazy. They think they're drunk, right? And then Peter stands up at verse 14. And Peter's standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addresses them. Men of Judea, all who dwell in, in Jerusalem, uh, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. These people aren't drunk, as you suppose. Since it's the only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In other words, these guys speaking in tongues, let me tell you what's actually, they're not drunk. Okay, let me tell you what's happening. That's what the rest of his sermon is going to be about. That's the introduction. And then what does he say is happening? Jump with, we don't have time to read it all. Jump with me all the way over to, let's start at verse 30. It says, being therefore a prophet, he's talking about David. And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he, should, he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. This is the important verse. Zero in on verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, what we just talked about, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, now who's the he? It's Jesus, right? He's talking about Jesus. He's saying he was exalted. He received the Spirit. And then he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Who poured out the Spirit at Pentecost? Jesus right? He said, wait until you, the appointed time. And, and, and apparently he and the father, he was the one that poured out the spirit on them. He was active in it. He was present in it. It was part of his plan. Do you get that? Do you see that? He is resurrected and living and active and moving and changing right now. And then they heal this lame beggar. And they're like, why are you looking at us? Like we did anything great. It was Jesus that healed this guy. 
The apostles had a profound understanding of Jesus himself working and moving and saving and building his church. And so what we're supposed to learn, and, and we can, I can show you this in Ephesians and that he's seated at the right hand. He has all authority now and in the age to come. I could show you everywhere in the scripture, but for the sake of time, what is the second half of Acts chapter nine supposed to teach us? It's supposed to teach us that Jesus is building his kingdom and nothing's gonna stop him. <laughs> Like Jesus is conquering his enemies. He's a chosen instrument of mine. <laughs> like, did Saul have a chance? Right? Like, seriously. Like, could Saul have said no? <laughs> of course, there's one sense he had that ability. He could have opened his mouth. He could have said that he had the physical ability to walk away, of course. But in another sense, he was toast, Right? in light of the glory of God and the purpose of God and the love of God being revealed to him, any human being would be toast. There's a sense in which Jesus said, I'm gonna save him, I'm gonna conquer this enemy by converting him and bringing him into the kingdom of God and my will will be done. Does that make sense? And so Ananias and us Christians, what we're supposed to do when we read this section is we're supposed to be profoundly encouraged that God is an incredibly patient God that is building his kingdom and will not be stopped even if the most hardened criminals are coming after us, right? Even if the worst kinds of people are trying to tear down his church, even if it's the chief of sinners that God sits in the heavens and when the nations rage against him, what does he do? He laughs. Isn't that amazing? He laughs. This, this, this should encourage you. Here's, here, let me, let me just close with this, okay? There's the two applications, two things this should do, that Jesus is resurrected right now in heaven, ruling, living, and active now on the earth in the church, that Jesus is still moving now 2,000 years later. Here's what this should do to you. Number one, this should radically change your prayer life. <laughs> like, we, when, when we talk to Jesus, he actually hears us. You know, like he rose from the dead, he has a body. He has ears. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's God, and he's interceding for us. He's our mediator. He knows our weaknesses. He knows everything. He rose from the dead, and when we talk to him, he actually hears us. We're talking to a person, not some ephemeral spirit that's dead and in Hades, and we don't know what's happening. There's this chasm between us. No, we're talking to the risen Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that what we see here with Ananias? He's just having a conversation with the Lord. And then number two, how should this affect you? Uh, don't despair, Christian. Don't despair. It's going to be okay. Okay? Even if you die, it's going to be okay. Please, it's going to be our, Don't despair. Don't freak out. Don't panic. Is your ministry not going the way you want it to? It's going to be okay. Are there some people persecuting you? It's, it's going to be fine. Is your marriage harder than you thought it would be? It's going to be okay. Is life not going the way you thought it was? Jesus is reigning at the right hand of the Father, and he laughs at all of his enemies. It's going to be okay. This should produce a profound sense of peace and contentedness in us, so that even if it looks like everything is burning down around us, we can say he's going to work everything together for good, and I can't wait to see how he does it. Does that make sense? I think that these are some of the things we're supposed to learn from this. I hope what you've seen is God's profound power. I hope what you've seen is the incredible patience of God. And I just want to close with those people that tonight, when I was talking about that section of you've just lived in pride and not been hungry to know God and not really been seeking him and judging other people, I just want to revisit that. And I just want to say everyone who hungers and thirsts, you can come to Christ and you can be satisfied. 
And it's because of his profound patience. He's been patient with you all these years. And tonight, he's offering salvation. Will you humble yourself? Like, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just shamelessly asking you, will you please humble yourself? Will you please say, Jesus, I want to know you more. And Jesus, what would you have me do? If that's you, please uh, talk to somebody. Talk to a director. Talk to somebody who brought you. Talk to me. Talk to anybody. And we would be happy to counsel you and open God's word and shows you, show you what it is that Jesus tells you to do. Would you bow your head and pray with me? Campus Fellowship is a student organization designed to come alongside local churches to reach college campuses. If you found this encouraging, we invite you to subscribe or follow for more content or go to our website, campusfellowship.com, for other resources. Thanks for listening.